the psalm, Psalm 130, and that's page 969 in your Pew Bibles. Would you stand with us as we begin our service in prayer? Doug, may I prevail upon you to lead us?
take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number eight. Number eight in the brown. this morning? Dale. Five, six, nine in the brown. <coughs> Is there a reason for this particular one? Five, six, nine? Six, nine. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
There's been a slight change to the scripture reading for today. It's uh, taken from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. John, chapter 15, 1 through 17. When you come to that, please stand with us. John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, Pointed that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And take your Trinity hymnal and turn to number 299, the red, 299 in the red, Trinity.
Our scripture text for this morning is John 15. In our series on the living faith, we have been considering the I am claims of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I remind you that this expression, I am, is the Hebrew word Yahweh, from which we get the transliteration. The transliteration is a made-up English word taken from the Hebrew. Yahweh, Jehovah, is what they came up with as an English transliteration. It means Lord, and it's Lord spelled with all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, to distinguish it from other titles given to God in the Scripture. He is Jehovah, he is Lord, in the sense of the great creator of all things. So Jesus is using this name intentionally, with the Jewish audience of his day, to claim that he is their Lord, the same Lord of the Old Testament dispensation. This was not only shocking to the Jews of Jesus' day, that one they thought of as only a prophet at best, but just a man would claim to be God. But that was precisely Jesus' intent. If Jesus is not the Christ, if he's not the Messiah, that's what the word Christ means. If he's not the Messiah, if he's not Emmanuel, God with us, the world has no Savior. No remedy for its estrangement towards God, and most important, no redemption for sin, and no escape from the judgment to come. We cannot fix our fallen, disobedient state with God ourselves. And without the perfect mediator, we are doomed. Therefore, believing in the deity of Jesus Christ is essential to salvation. If we make the wrong assessments of Jesus, we will perish. This is why Jesus taught, John 8, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one that I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. The claims of Jesus are essential to your salvation and to mine. You cannot dismiss them as incidental teachings which can be ignored. They are exclusive claims which set Christ apart from every religion in the world. He does not share the glory with anyone, and he makes no allowance for men to simply add him to their other religious views. No, instead, he calls on all men to renounce their superstitions, to renounce their false views of God and salvation, and to come to God alone through him. If you cannot accept Jesus' exclusive claims, you do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. So do not think of yourself as Christian, because you are not. 
The text before us today is no less an impressive claim. But this claim deals with the specific relationship Jesus has with his own people, with those who have accepted his deity and his exclusive position as the only way to God. What does he say? By way of a claim, he says, I am the true vine. John 15 was spoken to the disciples during the night of the last Passover meal that Jesus shared with them. On the table laid the lamb, the bread, the wine. Yet in this very room was the one who epitomized all those things. Did the disciples see this? It was the baptizer who had declared of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1 verse 29. As he saw Jesus approaching him. And Jesus himself had taught the disciples, John 6, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. It is then at the Passover table where Jesus begins to add new meaning to these symbols. First taking the bread, he says, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. And in the next verse, he takes the cup. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, en route to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus returns to this theme by discussing the vine and the branches. Luke's account tells us that Jesus had been talking about the wine as the fruit of the vine, Luke 22, verse 18, which is precisely the theme of our chapter. Only here, Jesus was not referring to the communion wine per se, but to himself as the true vine, out of which true branches are allowed to grow to maturity and bring forth fruit to God. Only in Christ does the church find its unity, its life, and its fertility. And the disciples need to know this. We need to know this too. Only in Christ. So Jesus begins his discussion by talking about himself as the true vine. That is, as opposed to others which may claim to be the vine out of which life flows. And secondly, he speaks of God the Father as the gardener, the horticulturalist. So let's look a bit at the work of the Father. God the Father is the gardener who 
plants the vine and cultivates and grafts the branches. This word gardener has many translations through the years in various versions of the Bible. Husbandman, vine dresser, etc. The original means literally one who tills the soil. We think of farmer when we hear that. A soil tiller. Well, that's a farmer. 2 Timothy 2, verse 6 says, The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crop. Or again in James 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. So farming requires that we be patient because you're really dependent upon what God does in terms of of the environment, sun, rain, humidity, all of those things. I suppose the NIV used the word gardener because when one thinks of a gardener, we usually think of a little, a little small patch of land in our own backyard, which in contrast to the mega farms of the commercial farming industry, receives special and select treatment of the crop grown. I'm thinking of uh, Dale's little patch of uh, garden that he maintains every year for himself, and he's generous with his produce with the church. But it's it's small, 50, 60 feet. Is that right, Dale? Somewhere around there? Okay. Compared to acres and acres and acres of the commercial farmer's but it's enough to supply all of his need and even be generously donated some to the church. And it receives special and select treatment of the crop that's grown in distinction to the impersonal and often mechanized farming procedures of modern agriculture. Gardener speaks to us of personal, hands-on, Growing techniques, hand tools being used, but generally not a lot of automation, nothing which would keep the hands of the gardener away from the personal touch needed for the plants. So Jesus is talking about God caring for him as the vine and taking care of those who are in Christ as the branches and whom he desires to produce much fruit, verse 5. He is making allusion, most likely, to the small family-owned vineyards which dotted the hillside surrounding Palestine, and from them he teaches the spiritual lessons which exploit the exclusive claim to be the vine by which and only through which the disciples will produce fruit pleasing to God. And it is God the Father who establishes the plants, his plants the vine, and the scriptures are prolific on this point. For example, John 1.14, 
The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There we see the Father is involved. Again, John 3.16, so famous a verse. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Or John 5.19, verse 20. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He does. And then another verse in John 5, verse 32 There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Now, all of these scriptures make it clear that it was God the Father who commissioned Jesus the Son, sent the Son, supported the Son, and bore witness to the integrity of Jesus' person and teaching. In all of this, the gardener planted the vine. And Jesus is saying, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees the Father doing. And that is speaking out of His humanity, in which coming to earth, He laid aside His prerogative as deity. And as Scripture says, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Boy, just... That's Philippians 2.7, by the way. But just think of the condescension of that. God, the creator of the universe, the one who only has to think the thought, and it's done, he comes to the earth as a human being, and is restricted in terms of what a human being can and cannot do. This is a tremendous humility. He becomes something of creation while at the same time maintaining his deity. Let me put it this way. This was a new experience for the Lord. He had always functioned as co-equal with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. As their equal, he was used to giving orders, not taking orders. He was used to thinking independently and not as a dependent. But in his earthly humility, he became a man in every way except sin. And it is in this sense that we hear him address God the Father as one who taught him what to say and what to do. He was truly the vine planted by the Father, beholding to God for his care, his wisdom, his strength. Secondly, it is the Father who grafts or cultivates every productive branch Attached to Christ the vine. 
We do not normally conceive of a grapevine as one in which branches have been grafted into it. We would conceive of the vine sprouting its own branches, nourishing them to the point of fruitful productivity. But we're not dealing here with normal horticulture. Rather, we are dealing here with that which is supernatural. How so? Well, because every man, woman, and child born on earth is a natural-born sinner. That being the case, no person desires union with Christ. So if left to nature, to put it that way, if it's left to nature, Jesus would ever remain a barren vine with no branches, no production. Isaiah put it this way. We grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. We had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, he was despised and rejected of men. Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3. And Paul concurs in the New Testament saying, No one seeks God. All have turned away. There's none who does good, not even one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, verse 11 and following. Or again, Paul writing, Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So you cannot count on human nature to make us a part of Christ as the vine. What is needed is supernatural intervention by God, the gardener, as he cuts, shoots off, of Adam's stock, and engrafts them into Jesus Christ. This is the biblical doctrine of election and predestination. By God's exclusive sovereignty, he wields the lopping shears, and with the knife of his word, he notches the wild branch so that it becomes perfectly fit with Christ the vine, who has been notched to receive it, this too we find throughout the Gospel of John. John 1, verse 12 and 13. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13. Children born, grafted that is, not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Wow. He's telling us right out there, it wasn't our decision, which is opposite of the so-called gospel that we hear almost every day on uh, Christian radio and TV. Again, let me read it for you. John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 65, also John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father has 
enabled him. Could anything be more clear? Moving on in John to another chapter, John 17. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, Jesus says to his Father. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. John 17, verse 6. This tells me that there are no natural-born branches on Christ the vine. All the branches which are true in nature have been grafted into Christ by God the Father, the gardener. God selects, he chooses, he cuts, he notches, he grafts in, and the branches are passive because they're dead and trespasses and sins. Who can bring life to the dead but God? Ephesians 2 verse 5. God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Of course it is of grace, God's grace, because no true branch in Christ found himself in union with the Savior due to any natural disposition or personal ambition. No, not that we loved God, writes John, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 10. So the Father engrafts the branches into Christ, the vine, and life begins. Life begins. Third, it is the Father as gardener who prunes the vine. Verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. There are two types of pruning that are discussed here. One is radical. One is total. One is final. Completely destructive to the branch and the other is moderate, selective, temporary, and beneficial to the branch. I was a gardener when I was in Pennsylvania. I'm not a gardener out here. But we practice this on our little garden. First, the scripture says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. We did the same in our garden. If you have a branch that is just sucking up the nutrition of the ground, but there's never any fruit on it, 
you cut the thing off and throw it away. Throw it in the pile, let it dry out, and then you're going to have a burn party one of the days. This is a pruning which results in a complete detachment of the branch from the vine. Does this mean that people who are true believers in Christ can somehow lose their salvation? That God can cut them off? No, that's not what it's talking about. I've been very careful with my terminology this morning so that I do not muddy the water. God grafts into Christ all those who are true, here's my word, true branches. There are no true branches unless they have come this way. Verse 16, You did not choose me, Jesus says. I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, and fruit that will last. Boy, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, lasting fruit. But some branches are present which have not been grafted at all. They have an attachment to Christ which is external. It's not of God's doing. How can that be? Well, there is in the plant world a branch or shoot known in common jargon as a sucker. They occur on almost all fruit-yielding plants. In my garden encyclopedia at home, I found the definition of a sucker. Here's what it reads. A sucker. A short or subordinate stem springing from a bud at the summit, that would be the top, of the root. But the term is also applied to shoots that arise from the buds located anywhere along the trunk of the tree as water spouts, say on an apple tree. Suckers on grafted plants are particularly objectionable since they represent the stock usually an unimproved seedling rather than the desired variety that you grafted upon it. They should therefore be removed as soon as they appear by cutting them off as close to the root as possible, not merely cutting them back. That's from the Garden Encyclopedia. Now, without trying to incorporate all the elements of this secular understanding to bear on our text, nonetheless, there is some general knowledge here which is helpful to us in comprehending what God the gardener is doing in verse 2 when he cuts off certain branches which he finds growing on the vine on Christ his Son. For example, there are people like suckers on a vine who cling to the vine and strive to get their nourishment from the vine without ever being truly one with the vine. 
It's everywhere. Jesus taught, for example, in another text, Matthew 15, verse 13, every plant that my Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. The way to which in which to distinguish a grafted branch from a sucker branch is that the sucker branch produces no fruit. It's easy. In all the years that I worked on my garden, I was pruning my apple trees in the backyard. And never once did I see an apple produced on a water spout. These sucker branches. They just grow straight up like this, right out of another branch. That's the issue in verse 2 of our text. It is the non-productive branches which God the gardener cuts off. These are branches that are taking branches. They're not giving branches. They are using the vine, sapping its strength, consuming its resources, but giving nothing back in return. They are self-consumed, not the least concerned about God and his glory. These are the people who love religion. They enjoy being around true believers. They like the Christian stand on morality because they are morally upright themselves, not profane. They faithfully attend church. They give of their time to worthwhile, humane projects. They contribute money for the upkeep of the building, and to support the church budget. They involve themselves sometimes in noteworthy enterprises, visiting the sick, works of benevolence, relief of the poor, and the downcast. There is a kind of charisma from Jesus which attracts them to him. They love to sing the grand old hymns of the faith. They love to listen to gospel preaching. All this and more people can do as branches clinging to the vine while yet not being of the stock itself which God has grafted into Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that explains a lot of the false religions that we see on TV and throughout our culture. On my apple trees in the backyard, it is that there is no signs of life in the sucker branch. There is. These branches, like all the rest, they get green in the spring. They develop buds along their trunk line. And then these buds break forth into leaves, which look every bit like the leaves on the rest of the apple tree. But there is never any fruit on the sucker branch. Just leaves. And leaves on a fruit-bearing stock can be overdone. You see, the leaves of the sucker branches shade the fruit-bearing branches 
so that the sun cannot reach them. And branches with poor exposure to the sun do not produce fruit. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon? Now the sucker branches themselves, they grow straight up. And in so doing, they have the least amount of exposure to the sun as possible while causing shade for every horizontal branch that is trying to produce fruit but is below them. So they take out the sun, the branches below are striving to have fruit and having a rough time. What's the spiritual distinction in all of this? It is this. There are people who cling to Christ who are nonetheless not grafted into Christ. Their fruit, while acceptable from a worldly point of view, is unacceptable to God because it falls way short of what God's standard is. For God's will, he says it this way, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, verse 40. Look, believe. Look, believe. But for the sucker branch, there's only looking. No believing. Paul, in speaking of Israel, in the figure of the olive tree, states, they were broken off because of their unbelief. Romans 11, verse 20. And the pruning of verse 2 in our text is due to the same thing. The sucker branches do not believe. If they did, they would be producing fruit for God instead of, our, of their own self-gratification and self-esteem. It makes people feel good to be religious, you know. To be moral to do good for others, it confirms to them that eh, I am a good person in need of no repentance of sins. And they certainly don't need to trust in Jesus alone, no, as the only way to God. But the Bible teaches us that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. Those who literally are of Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be conceited. Galatians 5, 22 and following. Jesus taught this in John 6, where many of Jesus' so-called disciples took issue with his teaching and found it, frankly, too difficult to believe. And so bye-bye, they deserted him. Jesus' explanation was this. The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. 
The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Verse 63. The best teaching in the world, the truest words from God, will not benefit you if you don't believe it. Brethren, there are self-made branches attached to Christ, but never called by God the Father, never grafted into Christ. They are branches which came on their own for selfish motives, to use but not entrust. And though they have all the outward appearance of a true branch, two things are missing. Here they are. Number one, the knife mark of the Father's pruning tool to show that they have been severed from Adam's sinful stock and grafted into Christ, the cut mark which shows that they have died to self and are now healed only in Jesus. Paul puts it, crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. And alive with God. Second, They have no fruit. (laughs) They have no fruit produced from a believing heart. All is superficial. Sometimes lacking zeal, other times lacking conviction, but always lacking spirituality, that is holiness. The Holy Spirit always produces a changed life in those truly attached to Jesus. You cannot be a true believer in Jesus Christ and not be changed. God will not let you go on in your sin. He will transform you into the image of his beloved son, and what is fruit on a fruit-bearing tree and vine, except the product of the tree's natural self. Oh boy. Apples on apple trees, peaches on peach trees, grapes on grapevines, Fruit is always the display of the natural life coursing through the tree which produces it. David Brown in his commentary on John puts it this way. Merely mechanical attachment to the true vine is that of all who believe the truths of Christianity and are in visible membership with the church of Christ, but they have no living faith in Jesus, nor desire for his salvation. They open not their souls to the spiritual life of which he is the source. They take no vital hold of him. They have no living union to him. All such are incapable of fruit-bearing, They have an external, mechanical connection with Christ as members of his church, visible. Does that describe you this morning? Are you a true branch engrafted into Christ or merely a sucker branch mechanically holding on to him though he has not owned you 
as one of his disciples. Do you have mere religious activities in your life which you go through with a kind of religious devotion? If you claim to be a true branch, where's the transformation of character which protrudes godly fruit? Why the gossiping or backbiting tongue? When will you speak the truth in love? When will you think the best of people? When will you set your mind on things above and not on things that are on the earth? I fear that some in our Sovereign Grace churches have been so long in the motions of Christianity, that they have mistaken external attachment to Christ for true union with him. <coughs> One thing about externals, they're not kept up for very long. There's a little consistency. In other words, people cannot be faithful to Christ every Lord's Day, every service, every opportunity. It's because they can only take so much. They can only be so dedicated to Jesus as fits their schedule, as he meets their need, as he answers their prayer. You cannot be faithful in a little that you might inherit the greater reward to come. You got to think long term and you got to think of extended reality. And if I speak to any here this morning, look carefully at verse 2. The sucker branches are pruned off. Jesus says. They're not trimmed back. They're not cut down. They're cut off. And verse 6 states, If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and they are burned. These are the sucker branches. Jesus did his preaching in an agrarian society. Everywhere he went, there were farms. They weren't always grape orchards. There was corn and wheat and all of the others. But when you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, take note of those times when Jesus pulls from the agrarian culture in which he is living he pulls from them to give spiritual lessons. For example, elsewhere our Lord taught that the tares are permitted to grow 
among the real stalks of wheat, but at harvest time, the day of reaping, God commands his reapers, let me read it for you, first gather up the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. Matthew 13, verse 30. That's Judgment Day. God will not forever permit the sucker branches, their false comforts, and their false hopes. The judgment is the pruning of God, the cutting off, verse 2, which ends in the burning, verse 6. In our gardens in Pennsylvania, I don't know if you have it out here, but in the cornfields of Pennsylvania, there were these sucker plants that we, they were called Darnell. Think about Darnell. It looks just like real wheat. Grows up the same way, gets the same coloring. It grows in and among the wheat. You have to be horticulturally wise to know what's wheat and weed to make the distinction. And it's so close. You remember that Jesus spoke to this issue. He tells the story of an enemy that came into the field at night and planted the darnel, the weeds among the wheat. You wouldn't know that originally. You have to wait till it grows a bit. Starts to look like a plant should look. But it did happen, and the, the farmers that were working on the thing they said to the manager, an enemy has done this. We'll get out there and pull them. We'll pull those weeds out of there. No, he said, no, no. No, no. Because everything is tender right now. The wheat is tender, tenderly rooted. The darnel. You get out there and start yanking on the darnel. You're gonna pull the weeds up, the weed weed up too. Let them both grow. Let them mature. And when harvest day comes, we'll first go out and clean the field out of, of all the darnel, all of this false stuff, pile it, dry it out, burn it, and then we'll harvest the real wheat crop. Think about the spiritual significance of that. God is saying to all of us, growing on this planet are weeds with the wheat, the darnel with the true crop. But 
I'm letting it all grow together. Because I don't want to hurt the wheat by tearing up the darnel. So, we'll let it all grow to harvest day. And then we will have a day in which we go in and we'll pull up the darnel. The wheat will be strong enough to endure that. We'll pile the darnel, the weeds in piles. It'll dry out. We'll set it on fire and burn it up. And then we'll go back to those same fields and harvest the wheat. That's where we're at, folks. God letting the weeds grow among the wheat. But if I were to ask you, well, who's the weeds and who's the wheat? You wouldn't be able to tell necessarily by just the external look. Because Darnell looks just like wheat. We had this in Pennsylvania. And it was hard to tell <laughs> what's the real crop here and what's the weed. But as they grow, as they get into flowering and fruit, it becomes obvious what the weed is versus, versus what the real fruit is. Or is. There is no real fruit on the weed. First Thessalonians 4 verse 3, Paul writes, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, could anything be more plain? The fruit that God is looking for in your life is holiness. You may be busying yourself in lesser pursuits, indeed, in religion or morally good things, but the greatest good you neglect. If this is you this morning, I call upon you to repent and return to God. God the gardener has you already marked out. In another parable, he says, the axe is ready to be laid at the root. And in judgment, you will be taken away. There'll be no plea, no mercy, no second chance. Today is your opportunity to get straight with God. Don't waste it on lesser things. These were hard teachings for the people who were the Jews of Jesus' day to hear these truths because they always thought of themselves, hey, we are the people of God. We are special to God. And here you are talking about weeds and gathering the bunches and drying them out, and setting them on fire. What are you doing? We're not that. We are the people of God. They couldn't handle the truth. I wonder, are we any better? You can be religious and not grafted into Christ. You can be just holding on to him because of the benefits that come in doing that but the change of life that comes from being grafted into Christ, that you don't want any part of. 
So that's a playing games with God. You'll lose, God wins, but I want you to win as well in coming to Christ in true and living faith. Father, we thank you for your word this day. Thank you for the fact that you're not fooled. You are not fooled by our professions. We can profess, oh, I love God. I believe in God. We can do all that all the time. But we may be weeds growing among the wheat, not wheat. I pray that if that's so, you will forgive us this day. Graft us truly into Christ. That we might be part of your family, your kingdom. Lord, we want to be counted. We want to be numbered with your people. Not in a superficial way. Not just in the sense of counting heads. But to really be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change us, Lord. Change our thinking. Change our attitude. Change our goals. Make us like unto Christ. He came to transform us. Oh, dear Jesus, thank you for that. We need to be transformed. Now, wicked we are and sinful. Our thoughts, thoughts are not wholesome. Our desires are selfish. We think only of ourselves. We need to have a total transformation of nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. Grant that to us for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn is in the hymnal, 92. 92 in the hymnal.
Lord, if you don't change us, we won't change. That's how bad off we are. It will take Holy Spirit power from God Almighty to change our hearts, our thinking, our goals, our aspirations, our energy levels, all of the things that it takes to live the Christian life. Being a Christian is not a piece of cake. It's a life involved, involving sacrifice, dedicated love, care for one another, love for Christ, love for his word. And none of that's going to change unless your Holy Spirit does his work of grace in our lives. Please do that for us. Do it for us in terms of our cells needing to be refreshed and cleansed, but do it also for your glory. For you rejoice over just one person, the scripture says, that repents of his sin and comes to Christ. Just one person makes you joyous because it's so hard. So hard. We don't see many at all. Bless these truths to our lives. Help us to live for you starting today if we're not doing it. I pray, Lord, that you will be rewarded and blessed by our efforts by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.